Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to Life in the Peloton, presented by the Cycling Podcast. I'm Mitch Stocker, and I've got Lionel Burney with me again to preview and give you a little intro to our next episode with Andre Greipel. Welcome, Lionel. Hello, Mitch. Hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, great to be talking to you. You're, we're on opposite sides of the world to one another at the moment, aren't we? We are, and we, we have a little chuckle as good morning or good evening as I sip away on a beer as you have a coffee, I'm assuming? Uh, yes, very much so. Uh, a bit early for me for a beer, Mitch. Uh, it's just gone just gone 9 a.m. here. Um, I don't want to get the listeners uh, worried about me and my, my lifestyle choices. But yeah, I've been uh, I've been following your racing over the last couple of weeks, Tour Down Under first, of course, and now you're in the thick of the Herald Sun Tour as we talk. Your home race, basically, in, in and around Melbourne. It's great. I really do love the Sun Tour. I've worked it out. This is my 12th time at the Herald Sun Tour and I've had some success in the early years and now it's just a really nice race to come back to and like you said, race on those home roads, even be in little towns that I've maybe never been to, but I just enjoy that Aussie culture. So it's fun to be back at the old Sun Tour. And what's the reaction to the podcast returning for a new season been and, and also your collaboration with us here at the Cycling Podcast? It's been fantastic. I'm very happy to say like a lot of the people I've spoken to from Life in the Peloton audience have come across and found the podcast still, which has been great. It was one of my fears that they weren't going to be able to find it and they have been able to find it, which is great. And the first episode, I think, went off without a hitch. Jimmy himself has had some great responses out on the rides and stuff around Melbourne. So thanks for all the feedback from everyone out there. That really is great to hear because... I'm happy I can still bring you some good episodes. Before we move on, um, because obviously quite a lot of um, people will perhaps be discovering life in the peloton for the first time. So um, just let people know um, how they can kind of keep in touch with what you're doing online and on social media. Make sure you send me a message. You can either drop me a line on my Instagram, life in the peloton handle, or send us an email at contact at lifeinthepeloton.com. Or just go over and check out the website at www.lifeinthepeloton.com. It's all very Life in the Peloton-esque, so I'm sure you won't get it wrong there. And just send me an email. Lots of emails coming in this week. I think it's probably been my biggest week of emails, which is great. Some good story suggestions, even just some thumbs up, which has been fun too. And if you still haven't, well, you obviously would know where the podcast is if you're listening to this, so I don't probably need to explain that again. <laughs> no. Well, welcome along, everyone. And um, before we get on to what is an absolutely cracking second episode of 2020, um, one of the things when we went, we broke cover with our collaboration and we announced that we'd be working together um, this year, people were very worried that we, the cycling podcast would, would drop your very distinctive theme music. Um, now, there's a little bit of a story about how we've we've gone about getting uh, official permission to use the music, Mitch. But first of all, um, people who watched the Tour de France in the 1980s in the UK will be familiar with it because it was a theme tune of the Channel 4 nightly highlights of the Tour de France. Um, but what does it mean to Australian cycling fans, your theme music? And, and, and what does it mean to you? This is a really good question because I've been asked this a lot of times and I've answered it a lot of times individually, but I'm glad I can put it out there now is that This music to me was what made me fall in love with cycling. This is what I used to grow up with, watching the 6.30 highlights on SBS, hearing Mike Tomolaris intro the the Tour de France 6.30 highlights, and then I heard Phil Liggett, Paul Sherwin commentate. So it was just for me the pinnacle of the Tour de France. And my brother and I came up with this idea of let's get this music back involved because that was what we loved about the Tour de France, about cycling and it just fits so well. Every time I hear that music, I just think of racing. So I hope, and I'm pretty sure everyone loves that that tune, and that probably gets them in the same spirit too. Well, we we had a bit of a, a mission to to get permission to continue using the music. Um, for those who don't know, Pete Shelley was the lead singer of the punk band the Buzzcocks, um, and he died uh, in December 2018. And, uh, well, I think a lot of people reading the obituaries when Pete Shelley died would have been surprised by the line that, that uh, revealed to many that he was the, the man who composed the Tour de France music for um, Channel 4. He was commissioned by the production company TSL 
um, to uh, make that piece of music. And as you say, Mitch, it really resonates. It really transports me back to the 1980s and, uh, and tea time in July, waiting for the Tour de France. And uh, as you were coming across to our platform, we felt we should find out who owned the rights and, and get permission to use the music. And it sent me on quite a circuitous um, journey to track down um, first of all, trying to contact music uh, publishing companies to see whether it, it was part of um, the Buzzcocks uh, back catalogue. And uh, my journey took me to um, the Buzzcocks themselves. I contacted the band and they put me in touch with uh, a man called Raph Edmonds, who was Pete Shelley's longtime manager. And we had a chat on the phone and I explained what we wanted to do. And Raph actually, in turn, asked pete shelley's widow greta and she has given permission for us to continue using the music so we are absolutely delighted for that um it's it's kind of on the condition that we we keep the legacy of pete shelley alive and uh, so i'm really glad that we can sort of shed a little bit of light on how that piece of music came about and um well, it's it's so uh, symbolic of the Tour de France and France itself because the refrain at the end is is very much a kind of a, a, a mimic of the French nursery rhyme "Frère Jacques," isn't it? Um, so yeah, that's the story behind the music, and well, it will it will be the opening to every episode of Life in the Peloton this season. It's fantastic, and I love hearing that story too. It's just. It's such a great tune and even me editing every episode and listening to that tune a million times, a million times more than everyone else, I still love hearing it. So it's great to hear that story and uh, I'm happy to um, keep keep the legacy living on. Well, let's move on with this episode, Mitch. Um, a really great guest, um, someone who here on the Cycling Podcast we famously described as a fading force um, and he then went on to win more stages of the Tour de France after we'd written him off. Um, a, a veteran sprinter now, I don't think he'd mind being described as uh, a, as a veteran. He's got a lot of experience under his belt um, one of the most successful riders to come out of Germany and a real a real big name to get um, early on in the year Mitch well Andre I randomly have had a really good relationship with Andre throughout the peloton and he's he came up to me a couple of years ago and said I listened to your podcast I'd love to get on it and I thought he's taking the piss surely he doesn't listen to my podcast he came back to me and said it again and again and I went I would love to have him on the podcast and it took me a bit of courage to get it up, get up the courage and go and ask him and I pinned him down and he was better than I even imagined. He talks so well on this podcast. I had a great time asking him all those questions I've always wanted to know, all about the old times and just about him as a sprinter and about his lead out train because I've admired him from afar in the peloton and just enjoyed his presence in the peloton. He's such a lovely guy. And so I just really, really enjoyed sitting down with him and having this chat. Excellent. Well, let's get stuck in, shall we? Just uh, let us know, whereabouts did this conversation um, take place? I just pulled him aside and we were at dinner and then we went up into... Um, actually, it was in Matt Keenan's hotel room. He was um, nice enough to offer his room to us to get a quiet space. We sat back up, back up in his room and just after one of the stages, I think it was after stage three, and um, had a had a chat just up in a hotel room in the Hilton in Adelaide. Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's hear your conversation with Andre Greipel. Welcome, Andre Gravel. Welcome to Life in the Peloton. Hello, and uh, I'm really glad and happy as a follower also to be part of your podcast, Mitch. You've actually been asking me for a couple of years, when are you going to get me on the podcast? And I was like, really? You you do it? And I was I was like, I can't believe Gripes wants to come on my podcast. So I've finally pinned you down and got you on here. So welcome. Great. Yep. Thanks. 2014, Tour of Luxembourg solo victory very uncommon for a sprinter in my eyes to do that run us through what happened that day last stage of tour of luxembourg actually this is my only victory 
I I could manage to get solo. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was flying on that day somehow. I I really wanted to go deep uh, just ahead of the Tour de France and prepare also the German Championships. So the last day was anyway uphill finish. So uh, I just wanted to go on the break and wanted to go really deep. And somehow, yeah, that break stayed away or we could manage somehow to to make it stay away. And at the end, it w I was the only one who stayed away. I was quite strong and uh, smart somehow as well. So I always went when it was necessary, super hard. And uh, yeah, I can descend quite well. So nobody could manage to get me back. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I really love about you, because from the outside, I see this guy and this is, I'm being very stereotypical here, but sprinters normally are very good at sprinting and any other time they don't do much else. And that's great because they win races. But you on the other hand, when it's not, when you're not sprinting and when it's not a stage for you, I often see you going in the breakaway. If it's a classic, racing the classics on the front foot. If it's not that, it's a hilly day, you're riding on the front. I see you as the best teammate because... When you're sprinting, you're awesome, you're winning. But also when you're not sprinting, you're an awesome teammate. And that victory there epitomizes that. It was like, it's an uphill finish. I'm going to go on the breakaway. I'm going to try and win. Is that something that you really like doing? Do you like racing as well as just sprinting? It's, uh, I would say, kind of my character as a, as a bike rider. So, uh, of course, I'm a sprinter. So I have to wait a lot of times and have uh, to save my bullets. But on the other side, when I can give something back what the teammates made for you, I'm always uh, super happy to do mm. so and uh, try or, or do 100% the best for them. So, and especially also in the classics, uh, it's really important to to ride aggressively and uh, also with, uh, yeah, let's say you have to be also smart um, and also in account of the teammates. Uh, it doesn't make sense if I wait and in the peloton it doesn't mm. help them so i'm always trying to get ahead uh, a little bit and uh, then i can be able to help them um, but still it's my way i would like to be to to race and uh, cycle more often that i uh, can be a bit more aggressive is that something you wish that you could have done more in your career just race rather than just waiting for the sprint all the time Yes, um, I would say uh, maybe I don't have the engine to do it every stage mm. or every day, but uh, you enjoy that. I'm, I'm really enjoying that, and uh, it's it's also uh, uh, like building up a house. Somehow mm -hmm. you're really getting into the stage or into the day, and you somehow start to realize this could work out, and then you are in your own movie somehow, and uh, yeah, yeah, you, you just try to end it up in a good way. I certainly hate it when I see you attacking and I'm thinking, oh, I get in a breakaway with you. I've been in a breakaway in the Tour of Flanders with you. I was away and then you came across. I thought, God damn it, Gripple's here. What's he doing here? You know, and you just rip it up. So do you like the fact of racing like that because there isn't that expectation of winning and you can just race a bit freer and just see what happens or... You just like the difference. What's the expectation of winning like for you? Uh, when you just take the classics, I, I've, I've never done any attacks for myself to be up there or, or finishing it, it off. It was always in account for the teammates that the plan was that they're going to join me somehow and mm. I can uh, be able to help them somehow. Uh, yeah, but on the other side, uh, it's the way you have to read also a race there are uh, different scenarios can happen um but there are always the points where you can possibly uh, make an attack working out mm. or not so uh when you have the experience of course you know it better when you should do it and when when not so uh, i always could manage to find the good uh the good uh, situations to stay away and uh get a little bit of a headshot but it was uh, sometimes it's not worth to put the bullets so early on the yeah. on the road because yeah you cannot make the final anymore then what was it like then comparison to the day that you had to wait and do a sprint do you feel that pressure or do you really enjoy that as well that expectation of okay today is a sprint day for me and i've got the whole team working for me and they expect me to win do you like that expectation 
Of course, uh, dealing with pressure is not always easy, and it wasn't. When you have a good lead-out team, uh, for sure it helps you a lot of times and mm. uh, it takes away a lot of pressure because you always can count on them. Um, but on the other side, like I really like to surprise myself sometimes mm. as well, and also uh, maybe some fans. And uh, I mean, I'm not doing it for the fans uh, in that moment, but on the other side, I, I really like to surprise myself in yeah. that moment. And then uh, you still realize, oh, this is really enjoyable what you're doing here. And uh, yeah, you you just get fully into this race. Even you have bad legs, but uh, the mental strength uh, helps you a lot of times as well. Mm, interesting. All right, well then, I want to go back way back to the beginning now. I want to go back to Rostock. Famous town, also famous Jan Ulrich coming from there too. This is the prodigy of cycling, I think, from the outside. I want you to tell everyone and me, myself, what it was like growing up as a German through the German system as a cyclist. Was there cycling schools involved? What was your what was it like growing up for you? Um, so the wall came came down at eighty uh, nine. So actually, at nineteen ninety was uh, the first real year um, where there was this change from East German to uh, West or to a complete Germany. Mm. So uh, the cycling school I was or the club I was riding for was still doing the same uh, East German system. Mm. The trainer was the same. So how old were you then? Uh, it was 1992. So I was 10 yeah. uh, when I started. Um, and that trainer uh, was the same like Ulrich had, so mm. we had the same guy who scouted us, let's <laughs> say. Uh, but yeah, this East German system uh, is still among us, uh, yeah. to be honest. Um, the strength, the East German strength, I like that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, on the other side, it's. Uh, I I think I can speak for all the cyclists who are starting in a club. You are trusting a. A trainer in that moment and they try to teach you cycling mm. in the way they think it's good so for myself it was like okay that trainer told me okay you have to work hard in the winter then you will have a good season mm. so and it's not just riding the bike it's athletic it's uh, gym it's uh, cyclocross uh, what were you doing then as a 10 to sort of 14 year old what sort of training were you doing back in those days we did everything we were running we were in the gym we were doing we did cyclocross uh we did track we did really literally we did everything so uh hmm. i mean that helped me throughout my career uh, because you that's the way i got to know cycling that hmm. it can be fun in this in the winter times it's so much fun sometimes uh where you don't need to think about the bike. You just uh, uh, run a little bit or climbing up a hill. And you're meeting your mates at the club. You had friends there. And it was like, what adventure can we do today? We're going to race. We're going to run. Yeah. And you challenge yeah, yeah, each yeah. other. Well, I mean, we, we did like hunting oh. uh, with with track bikes. So with <laughs> yeah. a fixed fixed gear around. And In the that, forest. That was not on the track. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, everywhere we could ride with these track bikes. So... <laughs> Yeah, you you get to know some skills, uh, yeah. and uh, of course the trainer didn't even know it that we did this. <laughs> Maybe when there was a puncture or anything, they were, he was thinking like, "What happened here?" But uh, <laughs> no, it was always really good fun. Yeah, nice. Well, fast forwarding, we mentioned Jan Ulrich, and to fast forward a little bit through that period, two thousand and six, you actually were racing with Jan Ulrich at Team Mobile, and that was quite a significant thing because. Just after 2006 was the whole Operation Porto and Jan Ulrich was um, named on that list and ultimately in 2007, T-Mobile stopped. And what I think was quite significant then, I had the feeling that was when it was difficult in Germany for cycling. You were just starting your career, pro career, starting to come through and show yourself and ultimately, you've now raced through that really difficult part, and now Germany, I get the feeling, likes cycling again. Tell me a little bit about that beginning, coming on Team Mobile with, I don't know if they were people you looked up to, it was a big team, it was one of the best teams in the world at that point, Jan Ulrich, Andreas Kloden, what was that like coming on that team? Did you know them well, or were they sort of role models? Um, first of all, it's like 
this jersey when it was uh, on TV. Yeah. Uh, there was a really big. It, it was the biggest uh, company you could find in in Germany. So that that jersey everybody knew. So it's like uh, uh, Bayern Munich uh, mm. or, or Barcelona or whatever. It was just a childhood dream to it was the best, yeah. to ride for that team, and this uh, dream came tr came true uh, in in that moment. So I didn't know lots of them. I knew a few riders. Um, yeah, but you came there in a system, and when I still look back now, uh, this team picture, it was amazing what riders were there. So. I'm quite sure that there were for sure 10 to 12 guys paid more than a million. So mm. uh, uh, it was just uh, this company had so much money that they could keep all these riders in the team. Um, but on the other side, I was also quite sure that it's going to be an uh, experience. Uh, uh, you make something out of it mm. or you don't. Mm. Did you feel pressure coming in? Or were you just a young guy just trying to find your feet anyway? Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, you came, I mean, you are scouted for yeah. a reason for and signed up for that team uh, for a reason. So they had a plan with me, I would say. Um, but still, you need to find a way. And I had not so much clue about cycling in that moment yet. Mm. And I also... Uh, not like in these days now you have the internet you have uh, instagram and everything you if you want to you can get to know everything you want and that time nobody told me anything mm. so now in these days uh, you don't need a, a teammate who is uh, teaching you anything uh okay when when somebody asks me i'm always happy to talk about mm. it and uh, to share my experience on the other side now they just need to type in on Google. Okay, that's very what, true. Yeah, what is what I have to do on an endurance ride? How do I do the nutrition or things like that? Uh, you, ha I really had to get to know everything myself, and uh, sometimes also in the painful way when you <laughs> get dropped uh, and uh, things like that. Uh, you will never forget. But I always say, what doesn't kill you make you stronger. So, uh, who are, who were the guys that you looked up to there? Who were the mentors? Were there guys that I wouldn't necessarily know about that weren't the big stars, or was it mm. always the guys that we know? I can tell you that my first ever night I spent with a T-Mobile rider was with Stephen Weiserman. Oh yeah, they put me in Fazer. the room with him, and I was, I came in the room, I was like, okay, that is a big rider. So how do you act? Yeah for sure you you have so much respect for this rider so uh, uh, yeah of course uh, it was in the off season all the riders went on the piss of course not the neo-professionals I somehow could sneak out and uh, 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 sneak out from that party to not just getting killed my engine yeah so I went in the room and I just can remember that uh, he came in the room at 5.30 in the morning and switched on the lights and he said hey young guy what are you doing and i just woke up i said hey yeah well, what am i doing in the night i'm sleeping <laughs> okay my friend your job is tomorrow to to wake me up at eight o'clock in the morning <laughs> so then you are there like you're a neo pro like in three hours time uh, you mean yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he was full gas drunk so uh, and i was i was i couldn't sleep then anymore because i was thinking okay how do I wake him up? Yeah. What am I going to do? Uh, but yeah, I woke him up and uh, he really acted like normal, that he didn't drink any alcohol or anything. It was uh, a nice experience, but I have to say again, uh, it was in the off season, so everything, yeah. uh, when you went out for a party, uh, yeah, it's always good. And I think it's known that a lot of active uh, riders or athletes are quite good in partying as well. Yeah, it's, and that's and that's what I think I miss too. Is that that that's the, t the team bonding and that and that I speak about it a little bit on the podcast that I feel like it's drifting away a little bit. This earning your stripes, coming through as a neo pro and and learning the way of the the, the peloton, and then eventually earning your stripes and progressing, but. It's a different. It's a different peloton now, um, and that's something I want to discuss with you afterwards. But 
I do want to discuss then what it was like through that period of, say, 2007 when T-Mobile sort of stopped and through the next few years and even the next decade, for you personally, what was that like being a German, one of the best German riders coming through, if not the best guy in the peloton at that time? Did you feel this responsibility of... I have to fly the flag. I have to try and make the German people love cycling again. Or you just did it for yourself. Um, was that difficult even for your personal life, racing as a German when people didn't really like Ger- uh, German people didn't really like cycling anymore? Tour de France wasn't on TV anymore. What was that like? Um, in that same moment, I was just now thinking about my experience I had with the T-Mobile jersey. Mm-hmm. I can remember that I was passing by a, a, a beer garden where everybody is drinking beer, and one guy was shouting behind me, "Hey, you, you, uh, you athlete or whatever, taking drugs, blah blah blah." Uh, and I just thought, okay, I'm not, I'm not a cheater. I'm, I'm riding my bike every day. I train hard. I do everything I can to be a good rider. So I just turned around and I said to this guy, "Okay, my friend." I just came here uh, from my town where I live and this is 80 kilometers away. And I'm doing this not once a day, I'm doing this nearly every day. We can meet up here tomorrow, take all the drugs you want and I'm gonna gonna be faster than you. Yeah, nice. Everything you want. And he was, I think he couldn't even reply to me. So this was a bad experience in that moment, but I was so angry and that moment also with a generation ahead of me because um, sometimes now nowadays I can understand what happened in that days mm. um, but on the other side it didn't help our generation yeah. for sure I could have get a better contract if these things wouldn't happen and I also can say that uh, in that moment I wanted to build a house and I asked for, for a credit on in the bank and I asked a hundred banks and they didn't want to lend me money. Mm. So there this was always the same answer. Okay, you're a professional athlete or bike rider. You can t- get tested positive tomorrow and you cannot pay back the money. Mm. So I no, there was no bank who wanted to give us money to, to mm. buy a house. So this affected everything what happened there, this affected not just uh, the, the cycling. cycling, also the normal uh, life. Did you see that transition over the years? As you started to become successful and you started to win, would, did you notice the people starting to change? Was it? Did you think it was necessarily yourself? Was a group maybe even like, you know, Gerald Schierlich was there also winning and like you guys together? Or was it, it took a long time for the public to change their mind? And what was that point? When that moment when T-Mobile shut down, uh, there was already the, the the thought in that moment of the team manager to to make a change to a younger generation. Um, and in that moment, I, I never thought about being a, a top sprinter or anything. Mm. Because like you said before, the times are, are gone that you have to get to know professional cycling in the way of a neopro. First, you're going to get bottles. Then you're going to have to pull in the front. Then you may have to make a lead out or, or things like that. This is the way I got to know cycling. So mm. I knew exactly what I have to do in that moment. Maybe this also helped me uh, to, to understand my teammates better because I know what they have to do, what sacrifices, mm. how professional they have to be, things like that. Um, but like I said before, uh, in that time there was a change to get a to get cycling into a younger generation especially mm. also uh to to get some more german talents in um and i'm quite sure that all of these riders uh had so much talent to turn around uh in that moment for sure there was also a lot of trust from the team management in that mm. time um and Somehow there was the whole change in cycling that everybody was riding uh, more clean than it was before. And uh, you can see this also now uh, that all these younger riders who are really talented, they come up, 
getting professional and already can be successful. So that is always a good sign that um, there's mm. a big, there was a big change and, and is a big change that uh, uh, that's a, that's somehow a clean sport for for sure. You always have some black sheep, uh, we say mm. in Germany, um, but still, uh, it's always a good sign to see young riders uh, being successful. And I see that, like I've been saying all along, I see you as the pioneer of that. And these guys were able to follow behind you, you know, like John Degenkolb, Marcel. These guys, I think, were able to flourish because you were there breaking the way again. I could be wrong, but I get the feeling that 2008 out in Australia in Tour Down Under, that was the sort of the start of Gorilla Gripal. The big results started coming. You won the overall here, and that same year you won your first Grand Tour stage at the Giro. Was that the was that a turning point for you, 2008, or you sort of felt things coming already before that? And what was the difference? Um, 2007, I had to... Uh to pull already a lot of sprints for Geolek. We were quite successful. Uh, I could win also some races myself. Uh, but yeah, Down Under was the first time also a Pro Tour race in that time. And uh, somehow the team management asked me to be in uh, good shape, to be able to sprint on my own there. What did you think? We're like, oh. I was like, okay, that's a surprise for sure. Were you uh, ready for it? I, I, did, I had no clue. Yeah, okay. So I just worked hard i had also my new trainer in that time with uh, sebastian weber mm. uh, he kind of gave me some new points to train on mm. um and somehow it turned out really good together with alan piper uh, he gave me a lot of uh, confidence for doing this race ahead we did also some really nice training rides and i mean Australia is a is a nice way, especially uh, Adelaide, to start up mm. the season. So uh, did you come here early? Yeah, Ellen always liked to come earlier here. So mm. uh, um, we started, yeah, this this criterium, and uh, mm. I was so excited. I even contest in the in these intermediate sprints, and <laughs> then uh, I could win the overall sprint as well on that criterium. And for me, this was already like, oh. That okay, was fun, yeah. And I had the whole team around me, so it was super nice uh, experience. And somehow uh, uh, it 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 turned the. That was a turning point in my career that uh, uh, I somehow could realize on my own uh, that I'm able to contest on the highest level. Because mm, then, the next year, 2009 was another step up. You had four stages, four stage wins in the Vuelta, and you had 20 stage 20 wins that season and the only other person who had more wins than you that season was Cavendish who was actually your teammate what was that like having practically at that moment the two best sprinters in the world was there a bit of tension there or did you still feel like you were just finding your way as a sprinter and he was still the top sprinter in the team it was more like uh, uh, we we just saw each other in the training camp in December um and we always called us uh, A and B team, so mm. we never raced together. So I had my uh, teammates around me to support me for the sprint, and he had as well. Um, for sure, we were quite successful, and uh, still, I always say whatever, if I would have been a spot director in that moment, I also couldn't make the choice. Uh, on the other side, they made their choices uh, for a reason um, and I think yeah I mean mm. how many stage wins in the tour he has 31 32 so they made the right choice uh, I was kind of successful on my own way uh, together with my B team yeah. uh, and I still would say whatever would happen I would make it always in the same way I did it what's so. what's your relationship like with Cav back then and now uh there were some conflicts, uh, but I would say that the media made it e always bigger than it really of course, was. Yeah, uh, I think we 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 both have a lot of respect for each other. Yeah, 
uh, but on the other side, it's it's like uh, we are colleagues, and in that moment when we were teammates, uh, we both have the same character as a bike rider so we both wanted to be the best be, be the yeah. best and uh, uh and but i still i think i'm not as stubborn as as he is mm. uh, i i see it more as an grown-up than he did in that time uh for sure for me it didn't matter uh, in that moment uh against who i won uh for me, it was already a childhood dream to be in the Tour de France. Yeah. So, uh, and especially when I look back, uh, my start of the Tour wasn't great. Uh, I crashed kilometer minus five before <laughs> the Tour even started. In the neutral? In the neutral zone. I was on the no. doctor's car. Uh, but this, this turned around by uh, Philippe Gilbert winning the first stage uh, in oh. the Tour de France. And we made an incredible lead out in that day. With an uphill finish. I Were you think. involved in the lead out? Yeah, everybody was involved. Wow. So we really pushed everyone on the limits and Gilbert finished it off. And I remember uh, finishing my first uh, Grand Tour stage, or first tour stage with goosebumps everywhere. Mm. Uh, it was a really nice experience. And um, the other sprint stages, we were always close. Uh, I was second, I was third. And on that day, uh, everything came together. I was in a perfect position behind Kev, and I could pass him. And uh, for sure, it made me somehow proud mm. to win against him. Or I'm still proud. But on the other side, it was just to win that to, to win that day, uh, and and uh, also somehow uh, prove myself that I can yeah. win two different stages was something what helped me throughout my career. Well, describe to me, you, you alluded to it a little bit there, but tell the people out there and even tell me how important one elite out train is for a sprinter, but how important I think even more so to your style of sprinting a lead out train is to you. Because some sprinters, they don't like it fast and, and lined out. They just sort of, it's too hard for them. They like to come from the bunch. But the feeling I get is once you have your lead out train making the speed, no matter how fast it is, you've still got enough power to step off that train. Tell everyone what it's like and what you did to create that lead out train for you. Um, at Lotto. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that moment we had eight, nine guys riding the Tour de France uh, with ambitions, but I had just three guys helping me for, or two guys helping me for the sprint. This was Seberg and uh, Jürgen Rowlands in that day. And then we were competing against a lead out train from HCC in that time. And they were uh, mm. that strong that, yeah, it was impossible to beat them. Uh, they had so much horsepower that you can somehow just use your two guys uh, to get somehow a good position for ahead of the sprint. Mm. Um, so that is what we are we were trying in that moment but then I knew okay I, I, we have to think different we have to get stronger and uh, this is what we started to create then to really yeah trust ourselves to really line it up mm. as hard as we, as we can and for that you needed the big engines so we had had to get to bigger engines in the team with last puck Adam Hansen didn't contest, didn't ride the tour in '11. He wasn't selected, but we somehow started to create something really, really good and really fast. And it was uh, for a lot of other teams quite hard to beat us. And yeah. If you line it up, you don't need to fight for position, and uh, everybody was able to win their own Tour de France stages in that moment from from my team but they were totally dedicated to line it up for me. And uh, that is what I always said also, that uh, I like to win, but I like to win more if the whole team was into it and yeah. if the whole team lined it up and everybody did his part. Uh, 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 it was always something special. And this motivated me even more to, to finish it off. I especially know that feeling, and I've often been the guy in front of the sprinter the last man they call it, or even involved in the train. And people always ask me back in Australia, yeah, but you're so close, Mitch. Why don't you just go for the sprint yourself? And I said, for instance, if I was leading you out, 
if Andre steps off my wheel and he wins that sprint, I know he couldn't have done it without me taking him that one metre further. And I feel just as much victory as the sprinter raising his hands as I would. And it was difficult for people to understand that. But that team connection, it's almost, I don't know, it's almost better than an individual win. Just say you go in a breakaway and you win it on your own. When you've had everyone, like you said, hitting their markers, swinging out, just that, I almost get goosebumps for it myself. It's mm-hmm. it's a crazy feeling. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I always try to uh, uh, tell young riders as well, that uh, whatever you did in the under 23, it's, it's de- deleted. Mm. because this is not professional cycling you have to earn your spot you have to get to know what you are good at or what you don't mm. so uh, there are a lot of uh, young guys they think okay I was a, a climber under 23 so I might be a climber here in the professional race but to be honest there are maybe 5 to 10 climbers who are able to win races and uh, cycling gets that much much more scientific now mm. that everybody is training on top level so when you're good at it, at leading out yeah go for it but get a good lead out man and then um, you you will have a long uh, career, career in yeah. front of you and that's the same for being like a uh, like a helper for a climber uphill you if you are good at it uh, you can have a really long career and uh, be successful as well and uh, at the end uh, you get a good contract mm. well speaking of long careers Adid you've touched on it now you've had a long career and a lot has happened so from those days that I talked about back in the team mobile days and I actually watched the other night the 2000 Olympics replay on, on TV when I was doing a bit of research from you I was looking up some stuff about Jan Ulrich and I, I was watching the 2000 Olympics and it was just amazing to watch how different cycling was from back then. Then when I came into cycling sort of in 2008 compared to the the day that it is now. And you've been there throughout all those periods. What do you see as some of the most significant changes? Whether that might be the way we race, whether that's something significant with you. What has been those changes over the years you can point out? I would say it's uh, the input from the media uh, made cycling change a lot because... Now we have a full live broadcast from from a lot of races. So it's not like in the old days, uh, everybody knew, okay, uh, that race will be live from 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. Um, and then you had one guy uh, in the bunch, he said, okay, why you want to attack now? For what? There's no live TV, so just cruise around. Hmm. And then that is what, because I'm rooming with uh, the son of Eric Zabel, Rick Zabel and he he always comes up with stories from the past and how much this changed because my father told me different but in that time it was like this there was a Cipollini saying okay we do the first 80 kilometers tranquilo mm-hmm. and then the race is starting so he gives gives a wave with a hand and the race is on <laughs> so three four guys attacked break away and for a reason and that in that time the live uh, TV started yeah and now there are a lot of races live from from kilometer zero so there's a lot of uh, advertisement uh, for the sponsors and that makes the races more more uh, much more fast than they were in the past uh, plus that for me this is one big change what mm. made cycling uh, so different now and uh, also, of course, uh, the scientific and uh, thing uh, with the internet. Everything is available now online. Uh, and if you are not, not if you are smart, hmm. you always will find your way uh, in figuring out what is good for you and what not. So you don't need to have uh, somebody uh, telling you what is good and what not. And even some programs to tell you if you're tired or if you're not. You know, I think we read into that too much. And even though I'm not from as old as you, I'm still somewhat between there. And I'm starting to get morphed into this new way because you have to, you know, you have to try and keep up with the game because ultimately that's that's what it is. Yeah, but on the other side, uh, I'm always open-minded for a new way of training rights. Mm. But then... On that same moment, I'm thinking like, okay, in the past I have done it this way, 
and it, it seems like that it wasn't so bad. So for me, it's sometimes difficult really to adapt for this for this new way of training because I'm still think that uh, I wasn't so bad when I did Before. it uh, different in yeah. this old German system. And then I sometimes also, or a lot of times, I come back to this long endurance ride without a computer on top who tells you whatever what what's you are doing uh, ju to just enjoy the ride and yeah. uh, cleaning cleaning your mind as well uh, that helps me a lot of times even maybe training wise and scientifically it's not the best ride you can do but if it helps you to clean your mind or clear your mind it's uh, it's something what what is quite good at it yeah at I think it, so at this. too All right, last question. This is a little one. When you're out training now, are you a coffee stop guy or are you not? Uh, I'm I'm a coffee stop guy. Okay. Um, every ride? Uh, not every ride. If I'm really into a lot of uh, intervals, etc., um, then I'm, I'm I just like to get rid of it and uh, get home and, and get home. Or maybe I do a, a coffee break then just before I'm home or yeah. something but uh, for me a good training day is always connected to a good coffee yeah nice thanks mate great to have you on the okay. pod finally thanks a lot eh? cheers Well, that was the Andre Greipel interview and I hope you enjoyed that, everyone, because I certainly enjoyed sitting back there with him and getting to ask him all those questions and actually hearing him speak so honestly about everything I asked him. And I wasn't too sure about how he was going to go with all that and what sort of answer I was going to get, but it was just, it was it was, it was was fantastic. That's the way I felt anyway. What do you think there, Lionel? Well, I thought it was absolutely fascinating to hear from someone who, from our point of view in the media, has felt sometimes like a, uh, a quite a difficult person to get to know in the sense that he's somebody who, around the team buses, is, is usually very focused on his racing. Um, sometimes when I've approached him to ask for a quick word after a race, it's been a, a flat no, which, you know, that you take the rough with the smooth when doing our job in the media. Um, He's always been very polite and uh, kind of open in press conference scenarios, but um, not somebody that, that I would say that I really had a sense of who he was or what motivated him. And over the last 40 minutes or so, listening to him talk to you, Mitch, I feel like I know a bit more who the real Andre Greipel is. And I've got to say, um, you know, he came across as a really likeable and, and very honest um, person. He's fantastic. And I think one thing I loved about him was I just that question that I didn't even go there, but he brought it up. What's happened and what's changed in the peloton over those years? And he really, I love the way that he came through the peloton that earning your stripes and earn, understanding the, the levels of where you need to be in the peloton. I was really happy that he brought that up. And I just love hearing about those old times about how tough it was. And you just really had to do every job as you came through the peloton before you could be a real winner. So I think that's something that's faded away from the peloton, but I, I certainly like hearing about it. The couple of things that leapt out to me, Mitch, were the story about his, uh, I think, first training camp with T-Mobile, a room sharing with Stefan Weisserman, who was obviously one of the experienced guys on the team. And, and as a young guy, his job is to uh, wake Weisserman up for training after he'd been out for a, for a big night. Now, we're always told that those days are gone as well. Um, but clearly, there's the occasional the occasional night on uh, on uh, on a training camp or two that that uh, that that goes on. Um, I suppose we are talking about uh, what 12, 13, 14 years ago now. It must be, yeah. I think those days are gone. Like I don't hear about that that anymore. So it is um it is great to hear about a guy that's sort of a a big star now. You can't imagine him being told, you know, to wake someone else up. But I, I guess you know it happened once upon a time. And the other thing, from the point of view of having covered Mark Cavendish's career from um, the start, was I remember the years when Greipel and Cavendish were teammates. 
and um, they really were, you know, there was a lot of rivalry within that team for the, the number one status as, as sprinter. And Cavendish kind of won that battle, didn't he? Um, I do know, I think we've talked about this on our podcast, um, you know, Cavendish really didn't want Greipel to be in any of the races he was doing for, for a period when they were at HTC Columbia, just because he didn't want any confusion. He wanted to be the man that everyone was working for. And I found it interesting, you know, Greipel there was... Um, kind of humble enough to describe his team as being the B team. But then he went out and he bagged a load of wins himself and got himself an opportunity to prove that he could be, on his day, um, the undisputed fastest man in the peloton, as his um, Tour de France stage wins tell us. But um, what what a start to the Tour de France career for him, crashing in the neutral zone and then ending up with the stage win and yellow jersey for Philippe Gilbert. That's another day I remember well from 2011 and a, and a story that really probably would have passed us by um, because everyone in the media would have been focusing on uh, Philippe Gilbert winning. So it was nice to hear that one as well. It's great. Yeah, I love hearing that. And different things that stick out to these guys in their career and stuff you can't find on their result page and whatever. And that's what I loved about bringing up the Luxembourg stage. I thought when I read that, I knew that was going to be a story. So it's, it's, it's great to talk to these guys and find out their stories. That really what means to them the most throughout their careers. Yeah, I'm learning as I listen, Mitch, because that was a really unconventional way to start. Um, Talking to Andre Greipel about the one race win that didn't come in a bunch sprint finish, and uh, that really had me hooked right from the start of your chat. So, um, yeah, keep it up. Keep going. We've we've got another one. We've got another one coming in a couple of weeks. Are we gonna are we gonna spoiler who that is, or let the listeners discover in a couple of weeks' time? No, we're gonna let the listeners discover in a couple of weeks' time. We've got a couple in the in the uh, recording room ready to go, but um, I'm still deciding which one's gonna go ahead, and still want to make a little, one more last recording here at the Sun Tour. So that last recording might might jump in front of the in front of that too. But um, I also want to remind everyone, if they haven't had the chance to go down and visit at Life in the Peloton, the Etsy store there, and make sure you get yourself some merchandise. You can't go listening to Life in the Peloton without drinking out of the Life in the Peloton mug or having a t-shirt on, because it just doesn't make sense to listen to the podcast without being completely decked out in the merch. That's the way I see it anyway. Well, you were very kind to give me a Life in the Peloton t-shirt, Mitch, when I visited you in Girona before Christmas. Um, still pretty chilly here, so I've not actually managed to go outdoors in it, but I'm, I'm wearing it around the house. And uh, well, when I listen to your episodes come into our Dropbox, I make sure I get the Life in the Peloton t-shirt on. It only makes sense. I know that, that's for sure. Until next time, guys. Tune in and uh, I hope you enjoy the last few episodes. And if you haven't heard them, go back and listen again. And until the next episode, I'm Mitch Stocker. I'm Lionel Burney. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.